on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the effort of partial disclosure, filmmaker, inquisitor, journalist, Louis Theroux is with us. Welcome. My name is Robin Malazzo. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film, and we are honored to be here with you once a week live uh, via WHUPLP and also via iTunes Evergreen, the Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social media at MSFMurmur. And what else? We have uh, modernschoolfilm.com and we have an email address. We're getting all this. Murmurradio at gmail.com. We're going to be live doing some live road shows and we're also going to be talking movies April 22nd in Chicago with Alex Ross, an incredible artist of legend and acclaim. We will also be in Boston May 11th with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Louis Gates Jr., Skip Gates, at the Coolidge Theater, and we'll also be, where else are we going to be in May? Oh, we're going to be back in Chicago in May at the Onion Comedy Festival, which is super cool, with uh, Christopher Guest talking movies. So lots of stuff. Go to our uh, murmurradio.com, also modernschoolfilm.com for all that, that gritty and that nitty uh, we're here, though, with you every week on Murmur. Pleased to be with you. Louis Theroux is on the show today. Louis is uh, interesting. He's sort of in a genre of... he He's incredibly popular in his native media land of the UK, of London, to be precise. He's not as well-known here, but uh, I, I'm guessing many of you listening based outside the UK will have heard of him. But by his own admission, he doesn't have as broad an audience here yet. He has a new film here, a new documentary film. Um, it's called My Scientology Movie. And Louis, we're going to talk about that with Louis. And also, I you know, want to talk a little bit to open because we're having Louis here with us. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting opportunity, I think. It's funny to me how documentary, you know, we're, we're in this world now where media... That word is under attack and news, that word is under attack or scrutiny. You know, what are we're trying to define? Well, here we're trying to define them, maybe in more populist corridors they're under attack. But here on this show and other shows and with other within other contexts, we're trying to define these words. The word documentary is an interesting one. Um, I'm always surprised how people so infrequently question the editorial view of a documentary. Let me let me detail that. So when when you pick up a documentary, I'm so off the shelf, but that's a video store. Anyway, back to uh, 2017. When you watch a documentary, 
we are we one you we I am drawn to that subject matter now for many it's not always the subject matter sometimes it's the filmmaker sometimes it's um, the, the the producer and other you know there there are other forms of magnetism but the subject matter is the core in essence but there's also a a shell or a core not a core around the core but a shell around the core and that shell or the the editorial views of the of the content of the subject and i think it's hard sometimes especially when the do- a documentary is working really well on a level of craft it's easy rather to forget the authorship involved meaning the decision making process a documentary is as subjective as any op-ed piece in a in a in a journalistic way we often f- forget there's this kind of invisibility around the approach to documentaries because we can get so wrapped up in the story, in the content we're being uh, exposed to. I always find that interesting because documentaries are as subjective as, you know, Iron Man 22, you know, starring, I don't know who would be starring in that, a, a glass, a jar with a, with a head in it. Ted Williams' head. <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's interesting. I, but n- rather than look at it cynically, I look at it at the, in the other way. I think filmmakers, I think all filmmakers, there's no film police, but if there, if there were a film police, if I was asked to establish a judicial body, a branch of film government that created laws that all filmmakers would have to adhere to, one law that I would lay down is every filmmaker must make a documentary. It will put the filmmaker, the creator, in touch with the de- that that everything is a decision. And conversely, everything is a, as much as a, of a fait accompli in a traditional documentary form as as in a non-documentary form, or what you would call popularly a narrative form. I. Th- this is why, and you hear, you've heard me say this if you've listened to the show, that every film is a documentary. So the word doesn't doesn't move me, documentary. But I think to re- really rivet the concept of decision-making t- into the, the cortex of the filmmaker and in, into the understanding of the audience, and this is the important parlay of the day, that everything is a decision, and every, every decision informs the vibration of the piece. We typically have a wider berth for documentaries. We think music just sort of comes from thin air and it doesn't, you know, or, or, uh, cre- or the, t- or the title sequence or fonts on a title card and everything serves into these, the opinion and the point of view of the documentary. That's sort of it. Documentaries have points of view, whether they want one or not. Nothing is, innocent in that way films are never innocent and i love that it is interesting though and i think what happened the the year 2000 the decade of the 2000s 2000 to 2010 the um documentaries became the sort of golden calves of american movie content now america does not have a uh, does not does not lay sole ownership to this golden age of documentaries. No more than they share, or no more than they maintain a sole ownership of this golden age of television. Uh, oftentimes, t- the the DNA of TV is rooted in other countries. Ironically, notably in London and in England, the BBC shows many of the American shows that you know and love are influenced heavily by English shows. The rise of documentary as cinematic currency in America to perfect storm elements. One was the democratizing of technology. That's the least interesting element. The other element, or there are other elements, another element is Netflix. Now, Netflix was born, technically born slightly, I think 19, we locate the birth of Netflix, late 90s actually, believe it or not. It's, It's almost 20 years old. I think the company was technically started in 1997. So that that utility, Netflix as a utility, opened up the door 
for us to feel documentaries are common and are common parts of our life. And I love that. I do think we're living through a, a golden age of document documentary, but much like the golden age of any genre of any of cinema of, of a non or, or of a narrative Hollywood sort, even we tend to forget that the pathology, the pathology of the approach today's guest, Louis through <laughs> You know, do we want to say he wears his pathology on his sleeve? I don't think that's any more fair or less fair to say than any filmmaker, be it a Werner Herzog or Barbara Koppel or or rather documentary filmmaker. You know, how about Michael Moore? So the pathology of the document is is the ta- is the signage on the subject of the documentary, and I think it's funny or interesting how quickly we for quickly we forget that in documentaries because, you know. We were spoiled on 60 Minutes. And to think that 60 Minutes is also pure objectivity and lacks subjectivity, well, that's a show for another day. Today, though, happily, we have a show with Louis Theroux. Calls himself a journalist, I believe. We'll ask him uh, first this. How are you today, Leonard? Fine. And I, I, uh, <clears throat> gotta get back to town soon. You know, I teach a course at the Psychiatric Institute and masturbation. I see. Doctor, you I know. I see. Guilt-related masturbation. No, 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 no not guilt-related. I, 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 I teach advanced. I'm quite a respected doctor there, you know. Leonard, what, I'd like you to your eyes follow this pen and just let yourself breathe deeply. Why? What? Relax. <clears throat> No, you're, you're, you're trying to hypnotize me, obviously. Do you mind? Yes, of course I mind. I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm, Leonard, you're not a doctor. I am a doctor. Just relax. No, I, I, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm due back at town. I, 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 I have this masturbation class. You know, if I'm, if I'm not there, they start without me. Playing on Zelig's identity disorder, Dr. Fletcher has manipulated him into momentary disorientation. With his guard lowered, she quickly puts him under hypnosis. Using post-hypnotic suggestion, she will now be able to induce a trance at will. My brother beat me. My sister beat my brother. My father beat my sister and my brother and me. My mother beat my father and my sister and me and my brother. The neighbors beat our family. People down the block beat the neighbors and our family. I'm 12 years old. I run into a synagogue. I ask the rabbi the meaning of life. He tells me the meaning of life, but he tells it to me in Hebrew. I don't understand Hebrew. Then he wants to charge me $600 for Hebrew lessons. Don't sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique. Let's trace the hints and check the file. Let's see who bit the dial, check the style. I flip the script so they can't get filed. At least not now, it'll take a while. I change the pace to complete the beat. I drop the bass to MCs, get weak For every road they trace, is a scar they keep Cause when I speak, they freak to sweat the technique I made my debut in 86 With a melody and a president's mix And now I stay on target and refuse to miss And I still make hits for beats Parties, clubs, and cars and jeeps My underground sound vibrates the streets MCs wanna beef, then I play for keeps When they sweat the technique Don't sweat the technique They wanna know how many bombs have I ripped and wrecked But researchers never found all the pieces yet Scientists try to solve the context Philosophers are wondering what's next 
Since they took the lab to observe them They couldn't absorb them, they didn't deserve them My ideas are only for the audience ears For my opponents it might take years Pens who's the pens are scores Letters put together from a key to cause I'm also a sculpture, born with structure Because of my culture, I'm a weapon instructor Technical style that'll be full of technology Complete sights and new heights after I get deep You don't have to speak, just see And peep the technique The other day I was uh, arranging for a guest to be on the show, and I exchanged emails with uh, a publicist. I was asking, actually, if the client would tweet about the appearance, and the publicist said, well, we don't usually get that kind of request from a media outlet. And it shook me a little bit because I, didn't, I never think of myself as a media outlet, and I, don't, I think it was meant uh, as an affirmative, an affirmation of something, but I, I don't think of what we do as media. I, th I think I want to chat with people about things and the smarter the better um so i don't know what we are rather than introduce today's guests by his job title as we usually do let's have him introduce himself by his job title please welcome to murmur into the modern school of film mr louis theroux so louis w what is your job title man i would say i'm a documentary maker and journalist it's interesting journalism is the word i kept coming up with looking at the new film, congratulations on my Scientology film, congratulations. Thank you. And that's a word you use. Define that word. You know, the J word is a, is a wicked word right now, and the M word, media, is even more wicked. So define journalism on your terms. What is a, what is a journalist? <gasps> I mean, by my lights, a journalist is, is someone who deals with truth, uh, someone who attempts to tell the truth, to discover the truth, but, but more than that, I suppose, deploys facts and factual information um, with, with the service of, of both uh, enlightening people, but also telling a story. Mm. And, and, the, and the sort of journalism I do is, by and large, it's to, it's to do with seeking out people who've been either marginalized, who are in some way viewed with uh, uh, suspicion, or, or are in some way involved in controversy or morally questionable activities, or simply in modes of life that involve d deep angst and psychological anguish, and by forming a human connection with those people, by getting to know them um, in some depth, in an intimate way, I attempt to sort of uh, both uncover who they are, but reach some sort of deeper understanding about the human condition. Mm, Tavis Smiley was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he talked about, uh, he said he's an advocacy journalist. There's two parts to that. Part one is, are you an advocacy journalist? A, and B, stroke two, is are you drawn to the things you don't know, or the things you've already discovered and you want others to know? You know, I don't know if either of those quite fits. I mean, I'm not a conventional advocacy journalist. <laughs> I don't feel that I'm su sufficiently certain of my own um, position on things, I, I, I'm a sort of tentative and somewhat uh, irresolute kind of person. Having said that, uh, in the course of doing my work, I've realized there is, you know, people sometimes say, well, I, I approach subjects that are viewed, you know, in sensationalistic or highly morally lurid terms, like, I don't know, neo-Nazis or the Westboro Baptist Church, or most recently Scientology, that, that, they, that they see what I'm doing as humanistic and um, thoughtful and non-confrontational, and, and the term open-minded is sometimes used. I don't see myself as uh, taking a relativist approach. You know, I definitely see there being a moral dimension and, and a point of view. So in that sense, I suppose there is an advocacy. I'm, I, I think I'm advocating a kind of humane sense of humane values. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a sticky trick. We're speaking with uh, Louis Theroux because the camera has a point of view. Uh, you have a point of view. Uh, and you were you were also a writer, uh, as such on on the content you produce the content as such and you post produce. So there's multiple points of view. And are you the delivery system of the subject's point of view, or is this your point of view? That's an interesting question because I think what I see in what I do is that it's it's my point of view. But for me, some of the most successful work that I've done has involved me being put at the mercy of 
events and me being wrong-footed. So, I mean, I'm definitely um, trying to create a space in which I can explore other people's experiences and be challenged by them. Um, but for me, the best sorts of storytelling I've been involved in as a, as, a, as a documentary maker have been when somehow events have conspired to take me outside my comfort zone mm. and for the story to kind of sit up and take its revenge on me. <laughs> Having said that, there's a, there's a, there is a greater, you know, there's a great, I, I'm still the one kind of putting the frame around those events, you know, because there's what takes place in the field and then there's also what takes place in the in the post-production in the editing bay mm, mm. and that's where i suppose i am firmly in control read a interesting quote you said um the way i like to work is to be invisible um and this may or may not resonate with you now um this quote but it's interesting because you are rather front and center in in the reportage uh what about that you know i, I don't want to you know, there's this interesting kind of ethical yin and yang here but would you? I guess the reverse question is: Would you ever do a, a piece where you weren't on camera? I've sort of made. I, I didn't seek out the role of being on camera. In fact, I wanted to work on TV. I suppose um, you know the first few jobs I went for as a, in TV when I was in my early twenties did not involve me being on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I saw myself as being equipped to be an on-camera person you know i don't have the the wardrobe and and the looks <laughs> of a conventional sort of tv presenter or a, or, or you know tv journalist right uh, having said that i um i was sort of invited to do it by my first boss in television michael moore and uh i see it as a bargain that i've struck you know i i i, I enjoy some of the aspects of my work that don't involve me going you know, be, being visible on camera, but I can also see that there's lots of people, wonderful documentary makers, who are not in vision. You know, and, and mm-hmm. as much as I do, I mean, I would love one day to be involved in a documentary where I'm not um, actually presenting it on camera. But um, for good or ill, it seems that this is what I'm uh, known for, and also kind of what my unique. Uh, you know, or I don't know, maybe unique is overstating, but that that seems to be where my talents lie, if you mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was thinking of Michael Moore uh, and also Werner Herzog, and you know, these they become the tattoo of the work, and the work is inseparable. Um, how much of your uh, d- that devotion, but how much of your uh, vigilance to the piece is connected to Werner? I mean, he's the tour guide, so I guess you go to the film because of Werner, or or the, is that a binary process? There's Werner and there's the subject, or is it now a singular process when you go see his work, or Errol Morris, or even Michael Moore now? That you, there's some distance there. I think you have a relationship with these people as a as a viewer, and so I think you immediately have a way into a subject, which um, you know you're not starting from zero. You're you're starting with the sense of being on a journey with someone who you feel you know a little bit. Plus, you have a and you have an identification with them, so that um, if they you know if they if they get into scrapes or if they appear to be in situations that are a little bit volatile there's an automatic kind of dramatic um situation that 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 unfolds i also think that um you know i'm really a fan of that way of working i think that you know in perhaps in documentaries certainly in you know with direct cinema and fly on the wall and cinema verite there was a veneration of the absent filmmaker, and that was seen as pure, and you see it in the works of people like Frederick Weissman. Like an Al Maisels or Fred Weissman. And yeah. the Maisels, yeah. although the Maisels have a presence occasionally in their films. Very much, yeah. But, uh, Grey but, Gardens, um, certainly, he's he's there with the ladies. Very much so, but yeah. that may be why that's one of my favorite of their works. <laughs> right. I sort of think that there's a, there's a, a sort of a, a sort of artificiality about on occasion about ignoring the presence of the filmmakers, and more than that, that you can nudge things along and catalyze events and create and kind of um, produce reality in different ways by being interventionist. You know, and I think, you know, Werner Herzog has said things about that. And, and, and I, you know, I really feel that I've been in situations where just by being there, I think I've been able to um, be a lightning rod 
um, for what's going on. I mean, my, my, my recent Scientology movie is an example of it. You know, you have Alex, you had Alex Gibney's Scientology doc, which was terrific and formal and, you know, with no sense of Gibney as a presence, you know, on screen. And then what I, what, what, you know, where I could differed and did, did mine differently was that I could kind of pr- provoke a little bit and invite um, a, a bit of a backlash and that you see how Scientology behaves when it's on the attack. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, that's a real service that I can, you know, provide, if you like. That, that That's the sort of role that I have and can, can kind of expand the frame a little bit and, sh- and show these things happening in 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 actuality in 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 a sort of in a present day way that you know whenever i set out to make a pro a program or a, or a film i'm absolutely trying to make things happen in the here and now they're not retrospective yeah. i'm not lining people up to talk about things that happened a while ago i'm trying to see things happening on screen well th- th- that's and i want to talk about the film it's uh, my scientology movie sorry i don't trip over that word philosophically i just can't say it very well um and philosophically but that's a different story um what i love about the early segment the early footage uh, in the film is when you're with marty in i believe it's his, the apartment you got for him and paz de la huerta comes by and i love you know it feels like this is a daily thing it's not you're not cherry picking you've kind of embedded yourself in this thing so i think you suggest it's a day-to-day uh ethos i think that's really great about your work you know even with jimmy saville and and others you 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 feel like you're an embedded reporter (laughs) you know it's it's really kind of um lovely uh let's talk a little bit more about the film speaking with louis theroux um so here's the question. Are you talking to me in hushed tones because A, you're, you're calling from London, B, it's raining, or C, you're in an SP hole? Which of those three apply, or all of the above, Well, <laughs> I am an SP. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, you, you know, are. That is, is a suppressive person as defined by a Scientologist, and that basically means a kind of a psychopath or someone who's deeply destructive and who is to be shunned or, or confronted and, and, and shattered in Scientology terms. However, I don't think I'm in an SP hole. I'm <laughs> a little bit hushed because uh, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old child Aww. downstairs. That's awesome. We're only separated by um, the, his ceiling and my floor in the bedroom up where oh. I am. So I try not to wake him up. That's the main reason. <laughs> That's a good dad. That's good dad work. You know, because if I do, I'm in deep trouble. And then my wife will come up and the interview will be over quite quickly. Yeah. Um, though I'll just speak with her because she's a TV director. So I'd, I'd much rather yeah. pick up with her. You know, the, the question I really want to ask you, and I want to get more to the film, but are you are you sick of talking about the film? Or are you, and, and in general, are you sick of talking? I guess my, you know, we had Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols recently, and I said, are you, I asked him, are you sick of talking about the Sex Pistols? He said, yeah. And, you know, same for Thurston Moore and Sonic Youth. You're on a circuit of information. I, I mean, I could talk to you about the rain falling, because I find you magnetic as, as a, as a, as a interlocutor. But when you're set out to talk about a film, does that bore you? And this is between you and I. You can share your honesty. Does that bore you to have an agenda? Because your work seems so extemporaneous and and you know in the moment. But so when you're set off to talk about a film on a on a kind of press run, does that is that excruciating to you, or are you okay? Actually, with that? Um, no, it's not. Uh, and and I think that's partly because I don't do a great deal of it, and also because. With my Scientology movie, uh, we spent, you know, the best part of a year and a half filming it and making it, and we were thinking about it for about three years. When I say we, I'm referring to myself, Simon Chin, the producer, and um, John Dower, the director, Director, and also Paul Carlin, the the editor. Uh, I also think that it's some, you know, I'm not, I don't have the profile in America that I have in, in the UK, so I'm, I, 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 you know, in a slightly embarrassing way, I'm a little more grateful for the attention and for a chance to let people know about what I do. And, and actually, you know, as, as weird as it may sound, I'm kind of, I'm, I, you know, I'm quite hard on myself. I find myself, you know, as we all do, probably live with ourselves, or many of us, you know, occasionally annoying. But um, I am a big fan of, of, of the documentaries I'm involved in making, and um, and and I don't think that 
I think I can. I think it's okay for me to say that because they're collaborative, and you know they hinge on the work of not just me, but you know my editors, directors, and so forth. And to, to, so, so to sort of think about those uh, out loud with someone like yourself, who I've never met, but who's obviously a sort of sensitive um, consumer and appreciator of of film and, 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 and documentaries, then that's a pleasure for me, in all honesty. I, I appreciate that, and I didn't mean to sound cheeky. It's just... No, no, not at all. I wish the line were a bit better. Is it crackling? It's crackling a little, little bit, but I again, I thought that was, you know, the rain hitting the pain. No, it's... It's like old, it's it's like old vinyl. <laughs> I'm grateful that you're here, and I don't mean... I didn't mean to sound ungrateful in any way. I just, you know, I guess I'm... When I look at it from my own... Uh, through my own Rubicon, I'm not an established entity so I actually merely like to talk to people and ask them questions and they may sound like a de facto concept but it's not meant to be and I guess I get worn down sometimes when people won't talk to me and I don't mean that because of them I mean that because the layers of abstraction that separate us from each other vis-a-vis questions vis-a-vis this industry do you know and and again not to blame the publicists of the world and I understand how these go but I, I, let's look at it from a, a different perspective. Do you ask questions of people in your life, and do they get tired of that in your life? You know, I always think of Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick, um, people who met him socially would say, you know, he all he would do is, would a, would be to ask them questions. You know, he was almost a cannibal for information. Do you find your predilections are your predilections? Are you a curious person? Do you ask questions, or is that sort of of the moment, of the context? Well, I mean, the short answer is yes, I do ask questions. Sorry for the long question. I apologize. It's just not at all. And I am guilty of um, I'm occasionally aware if I'm sat next to someone, um, let's say, at the dinner after a wedding or at (laughs) um, at a party, I'm talking to someone and I become aware that I'm sort of interviewing them and uh, I have to pull back little bit i'm a curious person and i i you know i'm inquisitive and i i'm occasionally guilty of almost putting a screen up between myself and the world and um just sort of excavating people but you know uh, i'm also different to who i am on tv i'm not in a um i'm not always in my inquisitorial (laughs) mode and and that you know people should understand that when i'm on tv I am doing a job. You know, people sometimes say, is that a persona? You know, are you really like that? You know, I am pretty much like I appear to be on my documentaries, but at the same time, it's it's me doing my job, you know? Yeah, yeah. You, it's funny, I was thinking when we had, again, to go back to Tavis Smiley, uh, we were talking about philosophy, and it's funny because philosophers, we think philosophers had answers, but historically philosophers were in love with the questions, you know, and, and the great and maybe slightly uh, staid um, reporting of information. You know, there was a time when questions were valued. Would you call, I mean, let's be, let's let's lack humility. Would you call yourself a philosopher of a kind? Do you feel like we've we, we've lost the desire to communicate through question and answers. Um, um, you, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a philosopher, but I, I do, you know, if there's a field of, you know, academic inquiry that I identify with, I suppose it's would be closer to psychology. And, and But having said that, you know, you know, if we're going to get pretentious, let's get pretentious. Let's do it, yeah. I do... Um, I do, I do find in in the writings of, of Nietzsche, the um, you know the German philosopher. I've heard of him. I yeah. find Sorry. I find some of his. You know, I I can't say I read it exhaustively. I sort of dip into him, and I find um, some of the the things he has to say about human nature, about ethics, about moral inquiry and psychology. I have found helpful, but you know, I try. I do try and keep my feet on the ground in terms of the work I do. Of course, I'm as vain as the next man. I'd like to think that I'm, you know, doing work that's of value. But uh, that's why I do stick with the term journalist. Or I even feel a bit fraudulent saying documentary maker, mm. if I'm honest, because uh, because the films are so collaborative, and I'm, you know, because I don't direct them. You know, I'm not a documentary director. Um, 
But well, I, I don't like the word director. Part of the team. Well, direct. No, okay, that's interesting. Go yeah, on. Well, I don't. We when I teach my filmmaking students, I call them filmmakers. I don't call them directors. Directing is an aspect of filmmaking, and again, I don't mean to sound sort of a reverse pomposity. I think the film is a progeny of many authorships, um, you know, and we could argue about that. But I think the word director. I want to be a director, and you know, I wonder actually how your wife philosophically feels about this you know she's often listed as a tv director to me that sounds so reductive so i I think the fact that phil you don't you parse that idea filmmaking and being a director i think that's spot on because i think it's overstating directing feels like amateur theatrics to me i think your work is really creation based but the, the 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 real parenthetical here is are you an artist therefore do you call yourself an artist um I, you know, I don't, only because, well, maybe mainly because I think it would sound a bit pretentious. And, you know, we're used to art as a sphere of production, which takes place kind of in galleries. And, um, that you know, that, uh, and, and I'm fine with, you know, and in a sense, I suppose it's not really for me to decide. You know, I'm fine with just making, you know, programs, making documentaries and, creating work that is uh, watched and enjoyed by lots of people. And, and um, I, tr- I, you know, I, 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 don't, I try not to be highfalutin. I, I am guilty of doing it on occasion. And, um, uh, and, in, and in fact, sometimes people say that, you know, I've been told, oh, your documentaries are sort of, you know, relatively high-minded or, or serious. Actually, I don't take that particularly as a compliment because, you know, I really feel like they are there to be enjoyed. But then, you know, my sense of enjoyment is fairly broad. You know, I enjoyed Leviathan, the um, the Russian <laughs> film about a man whose life collapses around yes. him. Yes, yeah, you know, incredible. I enjoyed... Um, I was laughing because that kind of surprised me that you said that, yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed The Act of Killing, you know, a, a, an amazing documentary yeah. about Indonesian genocide... Uh, and mass murder, you know, uh, it sounds, you know, I enjoy reading uh, Gita Sereni's books about the Holocaust and the Nazis, you know, so, so, uh, and, and I, I see all of those as being of a piece in a sense, in a very broad sense of, with, of, with, with what I do, which is, uh, as I say, journalism that's designed to provoke and, and tr- hopefully sort of transport and, um, um, entertain, as strange as that may sound. I was thinking, watching uh, my Scientology movie about you as a director. You know, t- again, now we can use this word because you know there are moments where you're you're literally serving as a director to this movie within a movie within a non-movie. You know, did that feel was that interesting? Because there are actors in the movie, and there's a whole mm. line of there's a DNA strand of acting. You know, and you were in the Belly of the Beast, which is LA acting, which is a different conversation for a different day did, did any of that feel right I mean you were an actor way back in the days of stone right didn't you do some stage production no I did a program about actors in in LA in, in New York rather when I did weird weekends my TV series and I, I kind of um, took on the role within that of of seeing whether I could make it as an actor it was lightly touched on but I've never re- ever since I was at school I, I when I was about 18, I would say, I, I swore off acting. I just realized that I didn't, it didn't fit with me. I did, a, I did a couple of things when I was at high school, and after that, I just felt it didn't fit with me in my sense of, it seemed to inhibit anything that was, any, anything that was sort of spontaneous or interesting about what I had to say and do. I became, it, was, it was kind of became boxed in. I got stiff and awkward and self-conscious. Um, so, and, and to answer the other question, in terms of my, you know, one of the difficult things about making my Scientology movie was um, working with a director who had a, 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 um, a fairly robust sense of what his role was, who was not used to working with a correspondent or a writer presenter like I am, and us figuring out what our shared authorship how it would work and what it would look like on screen. Mm. And, and uh, you know, partly there is a sleight of hand that goes on where 
I appear to be making the film. Um, I'm on camera directing but or, or kind of provoking or causing things to take place. But actually, it's very much a... You know, a, a Behind the and you hear him once or twice. You glance him. You glance, you glimpse. Yeah, him. and and you you hear him, John. John and he, yeah, you hear John. He, yeah, 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 yeah. And he and John is is there, and and we had to figure out. Look, we although we're two different people, and although John, you know, you are you you are directing the film. Uh, in fact, um, the audience sort of needs to buy the idea that I'm in a sense, directing it. Mm. They don't really want to be thinking that there's a shared authorship. They just want to sort of imagine and surrender to the process of... They can't be conscious of a kind of a divided authorship, you know, that there's two personalities pulling in different directions. That's a really interesting... um, It's an interesting... uh, sort of line I was thinking of that when I watched Borat for the first time um, to make it maybe sound like a crude comparison but Larry Charles directed it but the illusion is fortified by the fact that there's no director and I'm not comparing the Scientology, your Scientology film to Borat because we get we understand the full photograph of Borat as an entity as a as a as a piece of work um that borat doesn't exist and all these things so it's not it's it's not it's not a hat on a hat per se but larry Mm. charles is a kind of invisible participant Mm. and not you know thinking about that films that are that are kind of they're baubles of themselves but I, i watched when i watched my scientology movie i i didn't think of either i and I also, I would say to anyone, and we say this to our students all the f- time, um, every film is a documentary. <laughs> you know, mm. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a documentary. Um, you know, every film is a, you know, and that sounds maybe a little uh, clever by a half, but I, I don't even like the word, to be honest. I think the, I have my own issues yeah. with the word, but as a placeholder, I, I understand. A couple more thoughts. We've, we're here with Louis Theroux. It's funny about what's really great about the, the, you know, the Scientology movie, amongst other things, is you touch on something that I've always been fascinated with with Scientology is, is the use of movies. Um, you, the, the gold studios that L. Ron Hubbard created uh, and you drive by the, uh, their cinematography studio and something mm. that Marty refers to as the Cinecastle, which I thought was really interesting. And when I think of, you know, all the kind of agitpropism of it all, you know, from Hitler to Mussolini, cinema and moving images were front and center, and it's always been the greatest piece of propaganda. W- w- did it surprise you, or does it surprise you, how much Scientological and other spiritual uh, efficacy is gained through that form, through using actors? In the film, you also mention how uh, Scientological exercises are much like acting exercises. <laughs> There's a real kind of call and response in religion and in fabrication or is that too simplistic a point to make uh well you know the issue of the film making aspect of scientology i think is really interesting and it speaks as you said to l ron hubbard's fixation with hollywood he wanted to be a hollywood director himself uh i think it also kind of it it has interesting parallels with the ways in which religions over the years have come to be defined by their texts and have tended to be shaped by the the technological level of stage at which you know society was at and you think of um you think of monks in the in the in anglo-saxon times illuminating manuscripts and on uh, you know oh you think of protestantism being um a partly a byproduct of the printing press and um and the fact that you know the texts of um, the Bible, which formerly had been sort of, you know, books were so expensive because they were hand transcribed, so priests were really the only ones who could, uh, you know, were among the few people who could read and could have access to them. Suddenly everyone's got Bibles and they can check what they've got in their Bible and find out the priest is teaching the wrong doctrine, and you have, the Reformation more or less takes place, crudely put. With Scientology, you have a religion created in, tw- in the 20th century at the in the golden age of film as the sort of the prime medium for um, yeah. for for mass entertainment for how most people consume information and you uh, you get a TV and film based religion if you like and he had a strategy to bring in as your film so nimbly states Jimmy Stewart 
uh, early on, L. Ron Hubbard launched something that you mentioned called the Project Celebrity, which was to bring in Jimmy Stewart and Garbo and Danny Kaye and, you know, uh, let's say Tom Cruise is the modern uh, and others are the modern manifestation of that strategy. And I know when I moved to L.A., this sounds strange even when I reflect on it. I became I hung out with a lot of actors for some reason, and I became very self-conscious about what I said about, or even referencing Scientology. I, I, that's a kind of side pocket question for you. And even in London, obviously, there are actors who work in mainstream systems. D- do you ever find yourself knowing what you know now, self, more self-conscious about the subject in in polite company and or in mixed company? I mean, has it informed a different view of how entertainment works? Uh, having done this deep di- deeper dive into Scientology? Um, I would say, uh, you know, and this is a good question maybe to end on, um, uh, uh, bec- uh, partly because uh, I have to tuck my kids in, but also I think it, it brings up a really interesting issue, a broader issue, which is what level of reverence we as, you know, members of sort of liberal humanistic societies, you know, in the West, in the early 21st century, what you know, what do we owe the, that discourse of religion? Like, what do we actually owe people who say, uh, "Well, you're a religious bigot if you uh, say X, Y, and Z about what I believe, what my faith is?" And you know, Scientology's main weapon against its critics is to call them um, religious bigots. They put up a website, and I'm one of the people listed as a religious bigot. And early on, I began thinking about, well, what is it acceptable for us to say, and what is gratuitous? If people in good faith say, oh, that there are teachings of Scientology that you only learn when you are three years in and sort of $40,000 poorer for paying for the, for the, for the information, is, what, you know, is it fair for us to reveal that information? You know, stuff that's in a lot of the documentaries, we actually opted not to include just because it felt... Um, gratuitous to um, to sort of mention some of the um, what they term the sort of the upper level teachings but the bigger point is you know how yeah so and especially with across the board and I suppose the, the elephant in the room here is is, is Islam is, is how you know how what's the level of tolerance you know that we you know and what is reasonable in terms of our obligation to um, religious sensitivities, and I, I don't know that I have a satisfactory answer to that. I do know that I try to catch myself um, when I feel that I'm kind of being too broad in how I talk about Scientology. You know, I do like to think that you know I don't view Scientologists as some kind of vague and sinister other. I I I am convinced. Um, I know that there are Scientologists who are well-rounded people and who are thoughtful and think of themselves as good people and do their best to act ethically at the same time you have a belief system a religion and i do believe it to be a religion that has you know in the name of it has had terrible abuses committed that we've attempted to document in our film and uh, between those two poles you know between the fact of the abuse and the fact of the well-meaning um decent people you know you have to navigate you have to navigate a path and i think my film is hopefully the beginning of a contribution towards understanding that if we never see you again because they're they're i'm not talking about your wife uh, coming through the door i'm talking about the the uh, the sp police uh, what what's your white whale uh, as a subject uh, in all legitimacy who is your white whale whether it's a theme or a person um, as you look as you read and i'm not talking about next i'm talking about before you shuffle off uh, the earth Ooh. I know, I know. Great question. I'm not talking, you know, not the ones you, you know, I know uh, Heather Mills and others you've mentioned, but who is really your white whale? I used to say Heather Mills kind of as a way of... It felt a little, yeah, cheeky. Just dealing with the question. (laughs) You know, I do think that, um, oh, wow. I mean, well, I I, I mean, I mentioned it already. Not Islam, but radical... What, what's sometimes called radical Islam or ISIS. I mean, it feels as though ISIS is going to be erased off the map before um, 
like, you know, imminently if it hasn't already happened. But but that the doctrine of um, so-called Islamism, the idea, you know, what was taking place under the aegis of ISIS, the you know, gay people being pushed off the tops of buildings. You know, one of the strangest um, details I learned about ISIS was when people described videos of 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 people caught having, having you know, c- committed, I'm slightly using their terminology, homosexual acts, um, that they'd be condemned to death, right? Supposedly, as I'm told, under Quranic um, law. Right. And But it was said that it, before they were pushed off, the executioners would hug and there would be warmth and almost a sense of semblance of love between the executioner and the victim because... In killing the victim, in their in their view, they were wiping the slate clean. That by being pushed off the top of the building, they were saving the immortal soul of the um, of the guilty, the alleged guilty party, and they would be ending up in paradise. And so you have this sort of like awful, heartbreaking, horrendous, um, bloodthirsty act. You know, this this this, this killing. But it taking place under under the strangest emotional terms. So, the, the, and and I think it's those kinds of you know, it's those mysteries of, the, of, of of how people behave with with one another, of how we deal with our fellow human beings. That that's kind of that, if you like, is the white whale. That you know, that's what I'm. Um, that's what keeps me interested in the sorts of stories I do. The best questions are the ones uh, to which you don't know the answers. Your work proves to me that the best questions are the ones that may not be answerable. Uh, Louis, I want to thank you, man, uh, for, for continuing this work. Uh, maybe the next time we'll do it uh, face-to-face. It would be lovely to chat some more and, and to get into some more details. Thank you. Congratulations on all your current work and all the best in the days ahead. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for that, Robert. I, I enjoyed it. I'm sorry for all the crackles, and thank you for your perseverance. Have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Be well, my friend. Take, take care. Bye-bye. With a storm of cheers and a blizzard of ticker tape, New York welcomes back Eudora Fletcher and Leonard Zellig, the human chameleon. His remarkable feat of aviation fills the nation with pride and earns him a full presidential pardon. Forgiving multitudes flock to see him as he sits by the side of his plucky bride-to-be. Their journey of triumph leads to City Hall. New York's greatest honor, the Medal of Valor, is bestowed on Zelig by Carter Dean. You are a great inspiration to the young of this nation who will one day grow up and be great doctors and great patients. I've never flown before in my life, and it shows exactly what you can do if you're a total psychotic. Wanting only to be liked, he distorted himself beyond measure, wrote Scott Fitzgerald. One wonders what would have happened if right at the outset he had had the courage to speak his mind and not pretend. In the end, it was, after all, not the approbation of many, but the love of one woman that changed his life. sure that crackling was Louis's phone and um, I know he called me from his cell phone which is kind of interesting uh, th- anyway that's not really the headline here the headline here is you know I was thinking of something else that we didn't didn't sort of inject into the 
conversation with Louis. But, you know, there's also the relationship in a documentary and certainly, you know, with a show like Murmur, like we do, and with the work that Louis does, there's definitely a relationship where you have to preserve the opportunity to have information. But the risk is that information may not come through through you preserving those conditions. Meaning, uh, sometimes, you know, when, when you do a documentary, certainly when you do an interview or, or that sort of reportage, one neat, you know, I, I, rather than be rhetorical, I know that for my part, when I do an interview or a discussion with someone, I, I am conscious of the, of the of a little bit of a line of trust and the, and the subject or the person I'm speaking with has to trust me. And if I demolish that trust, I I seek or I, I risk getting nothing in return. And there are times so emotion, the the amount of emotion one puts into excavation of this kind becomes very important to the result. And I know there are times where I want to go a little bit more strongly into one one pattern or or ease back. But it's tricky because if the thing forget interviews, but if the subject you capture whether it's a camera or a microphone shrinks, you're going to get the act of the shrinking subject. Now that may be something you want to record, the shrinking subject. Now it if that becomes your strategy as a capturer, then the pursuit will always be about you. So I actually, and knock on wood, I've never had someone jump off an interview. Or, you know, I've had ones that I didn't think went as well or not. However, I, I've never had someone jump off. And, and the, a call or jump off, jump out of a seat or jump out of a window while I was talking to them. In my personal life, that's a different reality. But I, I often think that if that happened, then that's what that discussion was about. But one will never know if it's because of the information. Because in an interview, it could be about the day the subject is having, but also in a documentary. So all of these subjective snags spin the content into this sort of subterfuge and what that's really what a documentary is it's a subterfuge tool and what comes out is that document of that day that's why you know i think public figures are consistently litigated and there's a value in this consistent litigation of their career or inspection or thought about their career because i know when i do research before discussion, I look at patterns of information. I can't get in too enticed into one bit of information. I look at patterns, and out of those patterns, I create my subjective zigzag. So when you film something, and when you, when you, when you take in a piece of content that's documentary in nature, it is the most limited results of the endeavor to deliver something to you now there's good in that because you know what what are we to do watch all the footage that was shot no but everything that for everything you see there's something you don't see that's just the way it is and it has to be so effective now effective immediately when you go to see a documentary or even watch something on TV that's documentary in nature. It it it's it's always important. It's it's always valuable and helpful to understand the contrast or what you're not seeing. For everything you see, there's something you're not seeing. It doesn't have to be its opposite, but an open mind is as as worthy of of, of a a, moment, a strategy as watch in watching a documentary of something you believe in and an author you believe in as well as an author and a subject you don't believe in. We'll untangle this more as the week goes on, the weeks go on. We want to thank Louis Thoreau for being with us today on Murmur. 
WHUP LP every week we're here we're also evergreen on iTunes download us Stitcher Google Play murmurradio.com murmurradio at gmail uh, go to our website also the modern school film we are going to be in Chicago and Boston and some other trips abroad that we'll mention in the next couple of weeks in the meantime and in between time See you soon.